Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Wolfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, truth seekers, and truth crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. Hey, before we get started with today's show, I just want to draw your attention to new merchandise. Funkin' Stuff and Truth and Rhythm designs are in, and they look pretty darn cool. So show your support, help support the program, and show off some stylish merchandise and apparel. Only at the Funkin' Stuff store. I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership, singer-guitarist, G-Sharp, a.k.a. Sarah Fell. Since the late 1980s, he has worked, collaborated, and cavorted with many of the Prince-influenced Minneapolis scenes, musicians, and bands. Those include Brown Mark and his band Maserati, MPG keyboardist Morris Hayes, Jesse Johnson, protege Margie Cox of Tamara and the Scene, local group Dr. Mambo's Combo, and his own G-Sharp and the Business. His credits include Texas blues legends Jimmy Vaughn and Double Trouble, and his pursuits outside of music include marketing and consulting services. And also he writes a blog and produces a topical podcast called That Which Matters to Me Most. Gee, how are you? Thank you for joining the show. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Where are you today? Where are you talking to us from? My house. Yeah. Just uh, This is a backdrop. <laughs> if, I, if I turn this backdrop off, it'll be just a green screen. Yeah. But for... Uh, viewers what what city or twin cities twin cities yeah yeah erotic city i call it yeah nice i've been I here a long it, time uh, it's maybe it's finally warmed up uh by now <laughs> as a matter of fact it is it's like yesterday it was like 80 and today is like 73 but it'll be 40 again in a few days so it's all good yeah yeah <laughs> So you've moved around a bit, I know, and I've been looking forward to talking to you about, you know, all your musical experiences and the different locales and different people. So thank you for joining the show. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. So, uh, G, let's jump back. You know, I understand you're from Memphis, which in and of itself has a great rich musical history, of course. So uh, how did that shape you and how did you, you know, get involved with music? Well... 
that's a good question. Um, well, first of all, yeah, growing up in Memphis, Tennessee has its own share of of advantages and disadvantages. Depends on how you look at it. For me personally, by being born the son of a Baptist minister and consummate minister's wife, both of which are passed on, may they rest in peace. I, I, I was in church all the time. And um, it was a small rural church in Tennessee. And um, that was the springboard for everything that I do um, as far as entertainment, because my, my father and mother were planning for a, um, a program at church and anybody watching, if you've ever gone to, you know, small churches in the South, they have this thing because they don't really pay them that much money. So every year they'll have a uh, pastor and pastor's wife anniversary appreciation program. And they, they raise a bunch of money and they have a they have a, a guest minister come in and preach and guest choir. And they, they give him money and money tree and all kind of crazy stuff. Well, this particular one, I think I was six and my sister was five. And um, my dad says, um, we want you and Helen to sing for our program. And I, I remember, I'm six, right? And I was like, nope, mm-mm, right? My dad said, I'll give you a dollar. I said, I'm in. And I haven't worked for free since. <laughs> so I've been a professional musician since I'm six years old, right? So, but I've been asked in my life, you know, in a few interviews, uh, who are your influences? Who are your musical influences, right? And um, they always expect people like James Brown, Prince, you know, all that kind of stuff. But no, my my original musical influences were people I grew up with, like my Uncle Bill. My Uncle Billy was, he was, he was the coolest dude walking, right? He went to the Army, got out, you know, used his GI Bill, went to college, Got a great job. Had cool. He always had the coolest car. Always had the coolest car. Mustangs. You know, when Volkswagen Bugs came out, he had the bug with the drop top. He had everything. Everything was cool, right? And at the time, he was in his 20s, and I was probably 8 or 10, and I could not hang with him harder. I Everywhere he went, I wanted to be with him. And he was a singer. He could sing. He wasn't a singer. He didn't play gigs or anything. But he would just sing all the time, and I, I can I can hear his voice right now. So my Uncle Billy was one of my influences. My Uncle Bobby, my dad's uh, twin brother, baby brother, not twin, but baby brother. He was a twin. He is a twin. And Bobby was always into Elvis and and uh, Dean Martin, and he used to sing all this stuff when we were kids. And the Jackson Five, when they came, you know, when they came around, and, and we used to sing together. Me and Bobby used to sing together all the time. So Bobby sang. He's one of my influences. Billy Green, he's one of my influences. Um, a, a brother by the name, a deceased brother by the name of Sam Haddix. He was a deacon at my church. The smoothest singer ever, ever, right? He used to sing and do those Dr. Watts. And he would, man, you could just see women swooning at church over him singing the Dr. Watts, right? So he was one of my influences, Sam Haddix, may he rest in peace. And another brother at another church where my dad uh, pastored, he was a deacon. His name was Rance Churcher. And Rance was one of those entertainers, you know, when he sang in church, he would get up and walk and point at people and shake hands. And I, oh man, I learned, that's how I learned my craft, being around people who, you know, they, they, they encouraged you, but if you weren't any good, they didn't encourage you anymore. They didn't discourage you. They just didn't encourage you, right? So if they liked you, they were like, yeah, let's get Brother Sane, let's get Pastor Sane's son, get up and sing a song, right? So I just, I got into entertainment from, from just that. But, you know, I, I have musical influences, but my, my, my biggest musical influences never sang a gig in their lives. So, Yeah. Wow. Well, it's great to give them the credit too, you know, because yeah, you know. they're like the unsung <laughs> heroes in our lives, you know? Right, right. Oh, and one more, one more huge influence. And this one goes to a person who is actually a performer, right? I was in college, and I, never, I I had done gigs in college. You know, we had put a little band together, a little group stuff. We were singing, killing girls, screaming, ah, you know, all that stuff. But I was, I was, it was time for this, the school year to be over. I had already been in school four and a half years, and I had one semester to go. I was going to be a five-year student. 
And I was at the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff. And it was one of those nights where, and almost the same exact thing happened to me a few years later, but it was one of those nights where um, laying in bed, I know I'm not going to graduate, right? <laughs> I know that, right? And um, I'm laying in bed and I'm thinking to myself, ah, I can't believe I wasted four and a half years of my life. It was fun playing in gigs, you know, and I learned a lot of stuff. I'm pretty, you know, I'm smart when I want to be. It's like that, right? And um, and then out of nowhere, my phone rings, right? Wakes me out of my mid-sleep thinking mode. And it's one of my friends that I grew up with, Selton Cole, who now plays bass with uh, The Temptations. And um, he said, hey, man, uh, I'm in this band, and I want you to talk to the band leader. So he puts Angelo Earl on the phone. Now, you may not know who Angelo Earl is, but Angelo played guitar with everybody in Memphis. Everybody. He played with the Barcades. He probably still plays with the Barcades. And um, he, had, he had a band called Fingerprint. And he said, man, our lead singer just quit. And I was just referred. I refer, You were referred by Eugene Gales, who is Eric Gales' older brother who taught you, Eric how to play. I right? just had you, Eric on the show a couple yeah. of years ago. Yeah. yeah, I wrote a bunch of songs for Eric's last two albums, right? So, so um, Eugene said, yeah, you should go get Greg, man. He's the best. He's the best. And the reason why he knows that is because the first gig live I ever did in my life in front of a crowd was with Eugene Gales, Selden Cole, and Hubert H. Baum Crawford on drums. And it was a rock band called Weird. And we played the Memphis uh, Battle of the Bands and got second place, right? Against rock bands, all rock bands. And we did Sunshine of Your Love. And Bridge of Size. Yeah. What, was, what year would you say that was? Ah, uh, man, that had to be, I, I was probably no older than 16. So it was probably 1976. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy, dude. <laughs> I've done some crazy stuff. Right? So that's funny you mentioned that too. I was going to bring up the Barquets. I was going to bring up the Gales, and you just did. Yeah, I'm just setting it all up, man. <laughs> so. So yeah, it was um, Angelo put me in that band, and they beat me up for days because I was a you know I was a college guy, so I was crooner and all that kind of stuff. And by the time we started doing gigs, we were killing everybody in Memphis because we didn't we didn't view Memphis as our competition. We looked at Duran Duran and Prince and and the Time and you know and Bark Hayes, everybody that had record deals that was our competition. So we we practiced like that, we performed like that, and we killed everybody. Always, it was no doubt. So, why, why did you end up going over to Arkansas? Uh, Arkansas to college? Well, yeah. what happened there was originally I was I went to the University of Memphis at the time it was Memphis State University. So when I graduated from high school, my high school band director. Um, the University of Arkansas Pine Bluff band director came to my school and recruited me, but he said, you know, for a better for a better opportunity to be in a bigger band and blah blah blah, you should go to the University of Memphis. Then you don't have to leave town, nothing. Just go right there, you know, go right across town. So I let him talk me into it. So I went to the University of Memphis for a semester, and I was in the marching band. And at that time, <laughs> okay, I'm gonna shoot it straight. At that time, they didn't want brothers playing snare. It was one brother playing snare. And it was a drum core, right? So the drum core was in the middle, and they didn't march with the whole band. It was a core, right? You had snare drums in the front. You had temps and and little you know tom toms and stuff, and then you had the bass drums, and then you had the cymbals. All of the people that had brown skin were either playing cymbals or bass drum or something like that. But the front snare core was all white boys except for one and that was um that was Tim Longmire. They couldn't deny Tim. Tim was a monster and he was from my high school, right? So um so yeah I played with Memphis for one semester. I played cymbals. You know, I made it funky of course. And um and then I dropped out and went and joined the Navy. Right? Mm. So I joined the Navy in ah I think a, like right out of high, right out of that first semester of college, and I was in a delayed entry program. In the delayed entry program at the time, what that meant was you could join, you know, do your first swearing in 
one day and you have up to a year to actually ship. So then you can finish high school, you can work a year, whatever you want to do, right? So, and I started working for the, um, for the um, Navy recruiting office downtown Memphis as a, as a summer job after I got out of high school. And I met one of my guys who ended up being one of my fraternity brothers in college working at the Marine Corps recruiting office that same year. And uh, what I found out was when, you, when you're in the delayed entry program, if you go get a letter of acceptance from any college or university, you can defer your enlistment. So I just stored that in the back of my head. I don't really, I was planning to go and see the world, right? And went to visit some friends of mine from high school who all were going to the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff. So the weekend before I was supposed to ship, I was supposed to ship on September 11th, 1979. Yeah. No, 1980. Yeah, 1980. And um, I went down to visit everybody and got up the next morning to walk around campus and girls were whistling at me. I was like, what the hell? It was crazy because they didn't know me, right? I was just some dude on campus. And uh, girls were talking to me and everybody was coming up to me. Oh, who's your buddy? Oh, it's a homeboy, right? So everybody from Memphis. It, it, on that campus, if you were from Memphis, you were automatically connected to this clique, right? And um, I was like, this is pretty cool, man. How do you think about this? And they said, well, we got, um, we got, well, you should just get out. Can you get out? I said, yeah, I can, actually. Really? You should just come to school. So the, the choir, the Vesper Choir at UAPB, which is one of the nationwide greatest Vesper Choirs it is, and um, they were having a rehearsal for the first time and the last time that I was ever there, they had a rehearsal on a Saturday. So I went on a Saturday. This was all set up. I mean, the universe said, this is what we're doing. So that Saturday... I went to their rehearsal and they said, Professor McGee, who's long passed away, may he rest in peace. Fessor, we called him. He said, Fessor, we got a brother here from Memphis. He's one of our homeboys. You should audition him. If you like him, you should get him a scholarship, right? He said, okay, let's hear him sing. So I forget what I sang, but whatever it was, it was some soul music and the girls were doing their thing. And he said, Mr. Sane, we will gladly give you a scholarship to matriculate at the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff, but here's my one recommendation, that you stop crooning and start singing like a choral singer. I said, yes, sir, Fessa. <laughs> right? So that day, he wrote me up a scholarship full ride to the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff. And they said, now, in order for you to get in school, you've got to go talk to C.N. Tony." who has long passed away, may he rest in peace, C.N. Tony was the dean of students. Now, this is a small university, so you could just go over to a guy's house. So me and all our friends took the scholarship, walked over to C.N. Tony's house on Sunday morning while he was watching, no, Saturday afternoon, while he's watching college football, go in his house and make a plea to him to make me out a letter of acceptance into the University of Arkansas Pine Bluff. He went in his office, did that that day. So I went on Monday morning to ship and told them I didn't want to enlist, got deferment, went to school and stayed at UAPB for like four years. Wow. Quite a <laughs> series of fast events that just changed your life. Hold on, but let's, let's connect Arkansas. Let's, let's connect Arkansas again. Again, okay. While I'm on the campus at the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff, I joined a fraternal society called Vikings by Fidelity. And in that fraternal society was just a bunch of cool cats. We didn't have any particular thing that we were into. We we're just a bunch of cool dudes who liked each other, right? So I joined it because one brother who went there, Daryl Porter, he handpicked eight guys he wanted to be in the organization. I was one of them. The year after I was made a Viking, me and one of the guys who I was with were standing on campus, and we saw this brother cutting across campus, and he had on straight leg blue jeans, dark blue jeans, white capizios, a white suit, double-breasted suit jacket, a white shirt with a skinny necktie, and a Captain Antoniel kind of sailor hat, you know, right? And he had the Jerry Curl in the back, you know, and he had sunglasses on. 
And I was like, who is that dude? He looks like a cross between Michael Jackson and Morris Day. Who is that dude, right? Well, we walk up on him. Yo, man, who are you? What are you doing? What's up with you, right? And he was like, my name's Morris. And so, oh, no way is your name Morris, right? <laughs> like, yeah, my name's Morris, Morris Hayes, right? So we introduced ourselves. We became friends in college. He was a freshman. And um, we put a band together there in town. Morris played keyboards. He really wasn't that good at the time at all. But he just kept working. He just kept working. And every time he kept working, got better, I would put him in another band. <laughs> and we moved to Memphis, and he got in fingerprint. And then when they got rid of Aaron from Maserati, I, I told Craig, I said, Craig, you got to hire Morris. Well, is he any good? I'm telling you, Craig, hire Morris or send me home. That's what it was. So he, caught, he hired Morris. <laughs> and the rest is musical history. <laughs> wow. So... You said what he was like as a player and what he was like in his fashion sense, but what was Morris like as a, as a guy? Man, let me tell you something. To this day, and anybody knows Morris, to this day, he's the funniest human being on earth. There's only one other human that might be slightly funnier, and that would be my, my roommate in college. His name was Cedric Hawkins. But Morris has that dry humor is that Southern dry humor. He can just say a little something and it'll just level the whole room. That's who he is. That's his personality. But he's kind of pensive too. He's very, he's internal. He's very internal, but he's external at the same time. And um, we became fast friends in college and we lived together in Memphis. We hung out, we moved to Austin, Texas together, started the business. We did the business, and when I got the call from Maserati, I said, don't worry, I'll be back. Came back and got him. And we came to Minnesota, and we just took over. And how and when did you start picking up the guitar? Oh, man. I've been picking it up a long time. You want to know when I started to learn how to play it? <laughs> okay. Well, first of all, I'm not really a guitar player. I never, ever, ever say I'm a guitar player, especially in the presence of guitar players. Ever. I know a few chords, right? And even though I've had one person refute that claim that I'm not a guitar player, and that one person should have been enough, but I just don't buy it, right? So anyway, when I joined Maserati, there was an influx of new players coming in because the original group had split up. They had started a new record label with they're not labeled, started a new record deal with Motown through Brown Mark, who had had a, a production deal in Motown, who originally Mark wasn't going to be an artist on Motown. He was just going to be a producer. And they said, well, you do your own album. They put his, and they did that. And he wanted to bring Maserati over. So Maserati comes to Motown Records. Now let's think about that for a minute. Paisley Park, Maserati worked well, right? But think about Motown. So what's Motown going to do with a Maserati? So they said, well, we need to get another, you need to get another singer. You need to get a singer. That's what they said, right? Now, I disagreed. I thought Terry was a great singer. He's a great singer for what Terry does, right? So they said, we need somebody who can actually do our kind of stuff. And what they thought they were going to get was a Johnny Gill or somebody like that, right? But what they really got was a Sly Stone. And what they didn't realize was that me and Terry together was untouchable. So at the time, they had two guitar players, including Screamer Powell. And one of the guitar players ended up not being in the band. So once he left the band, Craig Rice goes to me and says, Okay, G, you're going to play rhythm guitar. Screamer's going to play lead guitar. And you're going to sing back up and lead vocals and cold vocals with Terry, like you were already going to do. I said, Well, Craig, um, you do realize I don't play guitar, right? He said, that's just a minor detail. Craig will teach you what you need to know. So every day from that point on, Craig gave, Craig gave me a, one of his old guitars, and I practiced with him. He'd come over and practice and show me the parts. You know, all the guitar stuff, right? And I'm naturally funky. So once I learn a couple of things, I can make it, you know, do what it do, right? So, so I learned all the Maserati parts, and... I needed my own guitar. So a friend of mine who was the drum tech for Nine Inch Nails at the time, her, her nickname was Boozy. 
when she heard I was getting this, doing me doing this guitar thing, she said, "Listen, I got because she was in town." She said, "I got a deal with you know music uh, uh, with um uh, 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 what's the the um ah uh, what's the, the music store Jackson. the big music stores oh guitar center guitar center yeah." She said, I've got a, an endorsement with guitar, so I can get anything you want a discount. I said, okay, cool. So she buys me the white telly. I still got it. It's right there. Um, she buys me this white telly, and I've been playing it ever since. I will not sell it, right? So I played that with Maserati, and after that, I just kind of kept on messing around, but I never took it seriously because singing was my thing. Frontmanning was my thing. So I picked the guitar up about like how, you know, how Mick picks it up with the stones, you know? So, yeah. that, but I know how to play it. So it's not like I pick it up and it ain't on, right? I did that a few times, pick it up when it's not on. But it looked good, but I knew I wasn't playing. Yeah. So how did uh, you make the Mark Brown connection? And, <laughs> you know, uh, when and why did you relocate? Okay. Now, sometimes the timeline is a little fuzzy. And some people listening may say, well, it wasn't really that time period. It was another time. Was this, this came first before that. Okay, I don't know. But it was a while back. So let's just start here. During the Purple Rain tour, and I don't remember, I don't remember fully when a particular piece happened. But anyway, during the Purple Rain tour, I'm playing at this bar. Fingerprints playing at a bar called the Western Frontier in Memphis. All R&B bar, right? Everybody in there looked like me. So we go to we go to, we playing this bar. We're playing rock and roll. We're doing everything, right? And the band and the club owner's like his name was Tojo, and Tojo lived up the street from me. And Tojo was a drug dealer, and Tojo was put some money into a club. So he opened this big club called the Western Frontier. We're playing there, and Tojo from straight Memphis, straight South Memphis. He was telling me all the time, gee, man, y'all need to stop playing all that rock, man. Y'all need to come with something else, man. I'm some Tyrone Davis or something. I said, no, nah, I told you. <laughs> you either hiring us or you ain't, right? <laughs> but you're hiring us, right? So we're doing all kinds of stuff, including Prince. So this particular set, I was doing Darling Nikki. And everybody who knows Darling Nikki, he's on the floor and he's humping the floor. Da, 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 right? And I'm doing all of that, and they got the spotlight. And when the song starts, everybody just gets off the dance floor because they know I'm coming out. I'm going to get on the dance floor, I'm going to hump the floor, and then the lights are going to go out. And this club was dope. It had nice sound, lights, and everything. So as soon as the, ah, wah, 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 right, that part. And then, and then the, the, the lights dim even further, and then we go into Careless Whisper. So I do Careless Whisper from the dance floor, just killing them, right? And that's the end of the set. So at the end of the set, this brother walks up to me. He's about my height, but he's about this wide. And he walks up to me and says, Mr. Brown wants to see you in the corner. I said, who, James? He said, no, Brown, Mark. I said, okay, right on, man, right on. Because what had happened, we knew that the revolution was in town for the Purple Rain tour. And we told the concierge at the Peabody Hotel, beautiful sister who had a really short, short, straight kind of haircut real close to her head with the little sideburn things and all that. That's where Prince stole that look for um, Raspberry Beret. But anyway, that's another story. But um, we said, listen, I don't care if it's security. I don't care if it's a roadie. I don't care who it is. Anybody from the Purple Rain Tour, send them to our show Thursday night. Because they're playing Friday and Saturday, right? So Brown Mark came out because he was clearly looking for some people for some different stuff. He was in producer mode. Right. So he comes out. We do the show. We did about five, six Prince songs that night. And as soon as I walk up to him, I say, hey, what's up, man? How you doing? He said, yeah, I'm good. Uh, um, um, Y'all got close. That's what he says. Y'all got close. <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean? He said, well, nobody can play it exactly like Prince wrote it because you can't hear what's on the track. But you got close. You guys, you can tell. I can tell you guys studied our stuff. Right. So we talked for a minute, and he said, you guys want to go to the show? I said, yeah, sure. So he gave all of us tickets to Friday night and Saturday night to the Revolution show. That night, he invited me back to the hotel, and I went there and hung out, and he let me hear some music because he was working on a new project, right? And um, 
Gee, was that still the Purple Rain tour? Was yeah, he was, this was a Purple Rain tour, right? So he was working on the Maserati record. And he was going to try to put another band together because Prince had taken over the Maserati project, right? So he wanted to have an ace in the hole. And he saw... And the, another thing, you got to remember, Mark, as a producer, he's always got a producer eyes and ears on. So everywhere he is, if he sees somebody that's really dope or he sees a really good band, he tries to figure out what can I do to make this go to the next level, right? Whether I'm working on a project today or tomorrow or whatever. So that's what he did. And um, um, long story short, we went to the show. It was great. I met Prince that for the first time in Mark's room that night. And Mark just, I mean, he didn't want him to come in, but when Prince ha gets wind that somebody's around that may be doing something he don't know about, he had to go investigate. So he came down to the room and, and I met him. But um, yeah, so fast forward, he flies me to, to Minneapolis for the first time. And I fly to Minneapolis and we do some demo stuff. I meet Keith Woodson while I'm there. And um, we just record some stuff right and um then i fly back home and he wanted to put a band together in minneapolis and i'm a soldier right if, if somebody if somebody tells me look i'm gonna help you do something are you down and i say yes i'm down then that's what i mean so for brown to ask me to leave my band in memphis so that he can put a band together with me in minneapolis that didn't fly for me i didn't like that I'm like, why would I leave my band at home when whoever you put together can't touch my band? I don't care who they are, right? So I, I backed out. Went back to Austin, right? Did my thing. And while I was, no, back to Memphis. And then the band Fingerprint broke up and I, I took Morris, Selden Cole, Lino Reyes, who was Rick James' drummer, and he was playing with us for a while in Memphis. And um, we all went to Austin and met up with Derek Edmondson John uh, Lockhart, who just passed away a year ago, and um, a few other cats. And we got together and we, we played in Austin, Texas as the business, right? And we cleaned up. Austin was nothing without us, right? Literally. And while I was there, I get a call, right? One morning, same deal. Early morning, just did a gig the night before, so I'm sleeping, not sleep thinking. It's got to be more to life than just conquering 6th Street in Austin, Texas. It's got to be more to life than just making, you know, a few hundred bucks a week playing in a bar. Now, granted, at that time in my life, I was making more money playing in a bar on 6th Street than everybody in Minneapolis is making right now. Not right now, but but when everybody was playing, making more money than any of them last year. Were, were you doing any originals or all covers? All covers. All covers. Prince taught me a very valuable lesson. He said, when you're playing in a bar, don't play originals. All you doing when you play originals, the bar is jacking off. That's what he told me. He said, because if I come in a bar and I hear an original and it's really, really cool, or if it even has a lick that I like, I'm going to steal it and nothing you can do about it. Don't play originals until you got a record. Don't be like the kid in Purple and First Avenue in Purple Rain, I guess. Exactly. Exactly. That was just a, that was a movie. <laughs> Don't let the movie fool you, right? Because I'm going to tell you, after that movie, Prince stole a whole lot of music out of going in the first half, you know, listening to people play their original stuff. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, so I moved to, I moved to Minneapolis and um, joined Maserati. I got a call on one morning, and I was thinking it's got to be more than this. And then I get a call out of nowhere. It's Craig Rice. Craig Rice, hey, Greg, I, more than I want you to join Maserati. And I'm like, Maserati? I said, what happened to Terry? He says, it's going to be you and Terry. And before he could even get that all out, Terry grabs the phone from the snatcher. Get your ass up here to Minnesota, man. We can come and make this record, man. Blah, blah, blah. You know, Terry. And uh, I was like, all right. So I, I, was, I said, can I, can I let you know for sure tomorrow? He said, yeah, you got till tomorrow. So I hang up. And I'm freaking out because I put this band together. Me and my guys put this band together in Austin, and we're killing. And I don't want to leave it, you know, because that disrupts the whole deal. I'm the front man. And I didn't want to be like Lionel Richie. You know, Commodore is doing great, and all of a sudden Lionel just jump out. <laughs> right? so, so I go to Morris and Selden, who were my roommates. All three of us live in this big apartment in Austin. And um, I wake everybody up. I say, man, I, I got something I need to talk about. 
And I read, what, what, man? I read, you know, I said, I just got a call from Craig Rice and um, they want me to come to Minneapolis and join Maserati. And Morris was like, so what's, so what you upset about? <laughs> what's the problem? <laughs> and I'm like, man, I don't want to just, just up and just pull. He said, look, man, you've been doing this your whole life, bro. This is the opportunity. And something else you've been doing your whole life. Whenever you get on, you always reach back. You always reach back. And if there's any way me or Selden or both of us can get pulled up, I know you'll do that. So about two weeks later, I was in Minneapolis, broke as hell, starving. But I was a rock star. <laughs> I, was in, I was in Maserati. Right? And, and, and that was already... I mean, had long separated from the Prince camp. Yeah, that was done. Prince camp was done. And, and you know, I come to Minnesota, and it's a coming from Memphis, Tennessee, living in Austin, Texas, going to school in Arkansas, coming up here to Minnesota was a culture shock, huge culture shock. You know, because the whole vibe of Uptown, the song, that's what it was. Back then, that's what it was. I mean, Uptown now was just corporate. It may as well be the Mall of America. But back then, it was just grungy. It was like Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco. That's what it was like. It was dope. People, you didn't know who anybody was, black, white, young, old, gay, straight. You didn't know because everybody was just mixed up in everything. And Minnesota is still kind of like that to this day, but but it's gone, it's gone way corporate, right? And the music scene isn't anywhere like it was because... After Prince, everybody started acting like musicians. They weren't really, but they dressed up like them, right? So everybody's walking around with the pearls and the makeup and all that stuff, and they didn't became too play. calculated. The magic yeah. Was yeah, yeah, the magic was gone, man. Because when 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 I came up here, you could see you could see Andre in the bar, you could see Terry and Jimmy in the bar, everybody, and just hanging out, right? Thursday night at First Avenue, there's no telling who you would see in that place, right? And if you came in there, you know, you you got girls based on what you said you could do, you know? And I never really talked about it. Matter of fact, I had many girls come to me and say, well, so what do you do? I said, I'm a garbage man. You know, I'm a garbage man, sanitation, right? <laughs> so, because I... You know, I just went into that whole, oh, you play with someone, so, no, no, I'm sanitation. So then they know, you know, that if they still are interested, you know, they're... Yeah, you know, yeah, okay, you, you do garbage, okay, everybody do garbage, okay. <laughs> you know, so, so it was, and plus I come from, I come from school where I was a, I was in a band in school, I was in fingerprint, it was a better band than any band I've been in, right, so it wasn't about being, trying to be this, you know, musical star, none of that junk. Because I knew, man, when it all comes down, it matters what happens when you take it to the stage. All that other stuff is nothing, you know. So learning what I learned, I remember when I was here rehearsing with Maserati and um, uh, Jerome Wilson's dad was a bass player in one of the blues bands here in Minneapolis. And they were playing at a place called Red's Roost. Right now it's a strip club, I think, or something. But anyway right by the, the Target Center. And we went down there and was hanging out and they were playing some blues. And uh, Red went, yeah, anybody want to sit in? Everybody in Maserati was like, nah, nah, don't mess around, right? And I jumped out, right? And I sat in with them and killed, right? So, and then fast forward, Prince told me one time, if you can't sit in, you ain't shit, right? Can I swear? Oh yeah, <laughs> So yeah. Prince said, if you can't sit in, you ain't shit. Right. So in other words, you need to have a, a working knowledge of music to the degree, even if somebody asks you to sit in in the in the, you know, Minneapolis Symphony, you should be able to at least stay in key or something. Right. So that's been my whole thing and playing covers my whole life for a living. I was ready for anybody. I don't care what you did. I was ready. Right. And I don't want to come off like I'm, you know, I'm this superstar or trying to so so awesome. But. But in essence, I always view myself as a working man musician, right? I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a soldier, right? Gee, I'm a sniper. How, how, how did how did you develop 
your stage presence as, as the front guy for for your band? Playing in a black band in black bars. When you're down south in Memphis, we used to play this bar in Jackson, Mississippi. We used to go there once a month. Big bar. Some brother owned it, and it was dope. And was nothing there but but brothers and sisters with brothers with their dates, with their wives, whatever. And it was it was probably 300 people there. Beautiful bar, food, everything. And we would come up and play. And they would clap, you know, clap. But they wouldn't give it up until right at the end. And then after the show, everybody be coming up talking to you. Hey, man, it was great. Right? But white audiences are a lot more forgiving. They're a lot more drunk as hell by the time they get there. So they're like, ah! Right? So you get a false sense of, of who you are. Right? But when you're playing in front of black audiences your whole career... Right? Well, they don't give it up unless you force it out. So by the time I got to Austin, Texas, it was unstoppable. Unstoppable. And I got my stage presence from watching people like Sammy Davis Jr., Michael Jackson, right? Al Green. When I was like, I don't know, 12, my Uncle Billy took me to Cream High Studio where Willie Mitchell was a friend of his. And he said, now you sit down, you don't touch nothing, you just be quiet. And I'm sitting there, and Al Green's in the studio. And they're punching every three words. Al would never learn the song. They're just punching. <laughs> right? So, But it come out great. He was so cold with it, man. He could make anything sound great. I watch these people. I watch how they move. Plus, playing in church. You know, it's still performing. So what you're trying to do is evoke an emotion. So growing up in church, I learned it's nothing if there's no emotion attached. Right? It's nothing. So when I listen to somebody like Luther Vandross, who was, who was a technically beautiful singer, I never was, no emotion was ever evoked in listening to, to him except for a couple of songs. But when I listen to Sam Cooke or I listen to Al Green, right? It's just a different, it's a different thing because Al was a church dude, right? Al was a preacher, basically. So I've always viewed my, my thing as if I'm if I'm on a show, if I'm on a stage, and there's nobody knows who I am, nobody's ever heard me, nobody nothing. I find somebody in the front, or in the middle, or wherever, and I focus on them. If I can get them going, the crowd's already done. Crowd's over, right? I pick the sourest looking chick in the whole room, and if I can get her going, it's over. And that's my whole thing. It's about it's about touching the emotion level. That's all it's about for me. It's always ever been. Because there's no money in it. There's no money in, in being a musician. <laughs> I mean, doing, I mean, playing bars and stuff, there's no money there. Yeah, so, unless you're part of the point oh 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 one percent Yeah, and I was I was up that, right? I, I played in bars my whole life. I made okay money, but it, was, it wasn't... It, it's not like you get a raise or anything. Everybody's still making 100 bucks, right? It's every, ever since 1976, guys still making 100 bucks a night, right? So yeah, so I, that's where I, that's where I get me from. People ask who is G Sharp, you know? Who is that dude? <laughs> right? Nobody special. But wait till I get on stage. Don't let me get on your stage. I I made a lot of people kick me off their stage. Don't call me up if you don't want me to take over, because that's what I do. That's how I ended up in Doctor Mama's Combo. And that's how I got connected back to Prince. Because I was, I just, the Maserati thing, it was done. And um, I went to sit in, I went to the fine line. And Dr. Mambo's combo was playing. That band was dangerous. Anyway, they were playing. And I'm like, okay, I like that. Okay, okay. And they were doing, oh, that was nice. I like that, right? And then I said, who can I, how can I get in, sit in with these guys? What's the Was Margie idiot? Cox always part of that group? Yes, always. So that's what I was saying. How, what's the easiest, least resistance way of getting on that stage? Oh, they got a girl. Okay, I'll go talk to the girl. So I go talk to the girl. I say, hey, you know, you're, you're an amazing singer. Is there any way I could sit in? Well, what do you do? I said, well, I was in Maserati, but that ain't relevant. I'm a singer, right? And that's what I do. And, it, you know, if you guys just let me sit in on something. But what do you do? I said, just name it. You call it, I'll do it. Right? So they called, um, they called um, Everyday People by Sly Stone. Sly and Family Stone. 
right? So I'm singing that. And then in the middle of the song, I break it down. Boom, drums, Michael Bland. Boom, boom. I said, Michael, boom. speed it up. He speeds it up. Boom, boom, boom. Speed it up. Boom, 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 boom. And I say, boom, like a, like a, like a, boom, like a, they automatically, do, 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 do. We automatically going higher, right? And, and they were like, damn, right? So they hired me. And I was in that band for over 25 years. Wow. Making the same making the same hundred bucks. <laughs> wow. Well, I never got to see that group live, but you know, on the record that was released, some of the covers are so cool, you know. Yeah, I was on that record. And respect yourself and yeah, I was on that record. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was on that record. Yeah, it was and it was funny because we we really wrestled with whether we would do an original record or not. Right? And then it was just came to the conclusion, why try to do something that we don't do? We play covers. So let's just do the best covers we do and just stick with that. And it worked. Right? Prince used to sit in with us all the time. I used to I used to embarrass the band sometimes because first of all my mouth was I say whatever the hell I feel like saying. But it was entertainment. That's all it was for me. But and it was no money, like I said, so it was just fun. So Prince used to come sit in occasionally. He would come all the time, but he rarely sat in. And um, I've had some very interesting conversations with Prince at Paisley. Not Paisley, but at uh, Bunkers. One of those, the last conversation I had with Prince was um, he, um, he was sitting in, at Bunkers, and I come off the stage, and I had just done the Prince medley. Because every time he came in, I would call the Prince medley. And everybody be like, oh, because they were so scared he was going to be upset that we're doing his stuff. But he dug it every time, right? So, and I sang all the songs. So that's why I stand by to this day. There's no human, living or dead, who sang Prince music in front of Prince, and he watched it every time. I'm the only one, period. Now, I, that's a feather in my cap. I'll take that. So I go off stage. just got done doing all the Prince songs, Right? And I go down, sit down with him, and say, hey, man, um, how do you feel about me doing one of your songs? He said, when have I ever cared about you doing my music? I said, I'm not talking about here. I'm talking about on a record. He goes into a 10-minute deal about how the music industry is this, and YouTube is that, and the reason why my fans all think I'm being a dick because I don't have my music on YouTube, but the reason why is because every time YouTube licenses one of my songs from Warner Brothers, they give Warner Brothers $25,000, $30,000. You know how much they give me? I said, how much? He said, $2,500. And it's my music. And they play millions of views. Right, YouTube's making zillions of dollars from my music, and I'm making 2,500 bucks flat, no nothing else. Right, so I just shut it down. Right, and he said, People got on me about the whole you know slave thing because I, how could he be a slave? He makes so much money, they don't understand, they don't understand how the music business works. Slave is the opposite of master. If you don't own your masters, you are a slave. I'm like, Yeah, you're right, bro, you're right, <laughs> right? So um, so the last conversation I had with him was me saying, so getting back to your conversation, is it okay if I use one of your songs? He said, do you have a record deal? I said, nope. Are you signed to any major label or publishing or production? I said, nope. He said, well, you can use any song I've ever written. That's what he said. Now, wow. what, what year about was that, do you think? That was the year before he died. Oh, wow. And the interesting thing about it is I just asked out of the courtesy of having the artist in front of me to ask that question. Technically, I don't have to ask an artist if I can cover their music. If the song has been published, especially if it's been released, I can cover anything. All I have to do is get the get the um, get the license. Licensing. Yeah, yeah, get the license. You don't have to do yeah, do that stuff. But Prince was so iconic. How do you go around him? Especially when you can go right to him. And I could go walk up to him and say, I want to do the song. So the song I chose to do and I haven't recorded it yet. Whenever I finish my record, I'll record it. And that's, um, I count the days. You got to be a Prince fan to know that one. MPG, yeah. Yeah, you got to be a Prince fan. So that's, my, that's one of my favorite songs he ever did, right? 
So it's on Exodus, right? I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> I just like the song, right? Yeah. So, um, um, and as far as the guitar thing is, let me go back to the guitar thing. There's only one person who refuted my belief that I am not a guitar player. And that comes from a conversation, another conversation with Prince at, pay, at Bunkers. And I go and sit down with him. We're talking about some stuff. I say, hey, man, I got a, um, I got a call from a guy who wants to get me an audition with um, the average white band. And he said, you should take it. I said, why? He said, yeah, pretty good band, but they need you. And you should play guitar. I said, now, they might need me vocally, but I'm not no guitar player. He said, let me ask you a question. When you were with Carmen, who showed you your guitar parts? I said, you did. What did I tell you? You told me, are you writing this down? And I said, no. And you said, well, unless you're a genius like me, you might want to write this down. He said, yeah, I, I remember saying that, but I was just trying to get you to focus. What did I tell you then? I told You told me, if you learn this, it's all you need. You're a, did I say you're a guitar player? I said, yeah. He said, well, you're a guitar player. Now, what do you do to that's like <laughs> you know what I mean? That's like that's like um that's like that's like Eddie Murphy coming to me and said, You funny, man. You funny. <laughs> right? I know you don't think you're funny, but you that you can paint a little, yeah. Exactly, right? So I still don't consider myself a guitar player. I've only done two gigs in my life where somebody called me and said, Our guitar player is out, can you sub for him? I've only done that twice. Didn't know any of the songs. I just knew the keys, and I knew where they were, and I've heard the songs a million times. So I got through the gig. But I'm not a guitar player in yeah, any so way. You, you can comp if you need to. I can comp if I need to, but I don't I don't read. I don't do none of that, right? So I, I can hear, though, and I'm funky. That's all you need. If you got good ear and you're funky, you can do a lot of things in this world. Ahead, I, I'm a testament. Yeah. All right, kids, if you're funky and you got a good ear, you can make it in this. <laughs> so... There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.